0: This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology.
1: This episode is sponsored by RiskIQ. RiskIQ has been crawling the internet for over 10 years, collecting intelligence on a massive scale, and have created a comprehensive graph of the internet. RiskIQ has deployed sensors globally to continuously monitor, extract, and analyze intelligence. RiskIQ will help you map, monitor, and shrink your attack surface while proactively detecting threats in the wild. If you wanna find out more information, check them out at riskiq.com or go to our show notes to learn more. Welcome to the first season of Hacker Valley Blue. In this season, we're gonna be highlighting threat intelligence. We're gonna be talking to experts, leaders, and highlighting some diverse thoughts in the field. I Can't wait to jump into the conversation and share everything about this new Hacker Valley season format, That we're dropping exclusively for all of our listeners. Let's jump right into it.
0: What's going on, everybody? You in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron
1: and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And this time around, we have something pretty special for everyone. Oh my goodness. I cannot wait. We
0: are doing something completely different. We're doing the very first season of Hacker Valley Blue.
1: Give them a little taste of what this actually is. This is a new season format. And for anyone that hasn't listened to a podcast season, or even if you have, this is going to be a little bit different. All the episodes are going to be available at once. And Hacker Valley Blue, we're really going to be focusing on all things Blue related in cybersecurity, security engineers, architecture, threat hunters. But this season specifically, we're going to be highlighting threat intelligence. Oh, my favorite. Yes. And I think threat intel has always been near and dear to our hearts. We've always done videos, live streams, and even podcasts on threat intelligence Chris, I I think there's no Chris Cochran without Threat Intelligence mentioned somewhere.
0: (laughs) I think that's pretty much true. I remember our first ever episode featuring Threat Intelligence. I was like, all right, I I need to try not to get spun up. So I'm going to have to (laughs) try to contain myself for an entire season of Threat Intelligence discussion.
1: I'm super excited about it. Yeah, and it's going to be really nice giving the listeners you all some information about Chris and myself. I think we really highlight the individual, the experts, and also the technology on the podcast. But episode one of Hacker Valley Blue this season is going to be featured, yours truly, and also Chris Cochran. Yeah, so we're going to hop right into
0: the discussion. And I think for everyone's awareness and even my own, because we've had small discussions about our backgrounds in threat intelligence, but I don't think we've had an in-depth discussion. Like, I, I don't really know what the different tasks were that you had when you're in your different roles doing threat intelligence and I think vice versa.
1: Yeah. So to kind of put you in the hot seat and also myself, tell us a little bit about your background and some of the things that you're working on today.
0: Yeah, so my background in threat intelligence really began in the United States Marine Corps. I picked intelligence as my job field, and I had no idea what it was going to be doing. I thought, you know, I'm a pretty intelligent guy, and that's why I picked intelligence. And I went through boot camp, and I was asking people, like, what am I going to be doing? And they're like, I don't know. It's top secret. And so I was like, goodness, I don't know what I'm walking into. Uh, went to school, did some training, and lo and behold, I became one of the members of the National Security Agency. And that's where I really learned the beginnings of the tradecraft. And I did that for about five years. And then I went to United States Cyber Command as an all-source analyst. But what basically became threat intelligence as it is today, really focused on the how, the who, the what, of all the cyber attacks and things that were going on at the time and at the time I was like there's no way I'm going to be able to get a job out in industry with this skill set. So I went back to school. While I was at Cyber Command I went back to school and I was getting my certs and things like that because I thought that I needed these skills to continue if I had to leave the government. But fast forward a couple years Threat intelligence is the hot button. Everybody was doing threat intelligence. Everybody was selling threat intelligence. And I couldn't believe it that I had hit this like lottery of job fields. And I stepped out and I did my own company for about three years. And it did really, really well. Kind of fast forwarding a little bit. The company did well. And I went the consulting route for a little bit. And actually, we worked together. We worked together at IronNet. You were the hunter. I was the intel guy. You know, that was that was really what started our relationship. And I was at Mandian. I was at Booz Allen Hamilton. I stood up the threat intelligence capability at the House of Representatives. I was at Netflix leading threat intelligence. Really, I spent the better part over a decade of my life in my career doing threat intelligence, building threat intelligence capabilities.
1: And it really made me who I am today. What about you? So my background is I'm a son of cybersecurity. I've really always breathed and lived cybersecurity. And at a pretty early age, I had a big break. One of my early mentors, Marcus Carey, I was uh, working at a public access channel. I was a cameraman and I was around 16 at the time working through an internship, reading books on cybersecurity. And Marcus Carey walks into this recording studio and he wants to do a bit on cybersecurity. So he sees me reading this book on CCNA, like I'm trying to be a hacker, but I know that I can't hack you remotely because I don't know how networking technologies work. So he's reading a book on CCNA. He thought that was pretty interesting that a teenager was reading this type of book. For anyone that's taken their CCNA I would say pretty technical. It's not an easy certification to take. So for me and my developing mind, it was kind of like nails on a chalkboard reading that, that content and finding resources to run commands on Cisco routers. But luckily, Marcus took me under his wing and I've been off to the races ever since. I started my career at Booz Allen Hamilton and I had a pretty great opportunity. I was going to Community college, and one of my professors was a senior consultant at Booz Allen Hamilton. And me and him, we always had a playful banter. I would always point out flaws in the books and also some of the instruction content that he led. And he was like, Since you know so much, why not just come work at Booz Allen Hamilton? So I actually started there when I was 19. I was very fortunate and lucky to have such a good mentor through Marcus Carey and even my mentor through my college professor who referred me to Booz Allen. And I started as a operations analyst. So I was working kind of in an offensive manner for some government clients. And my whole job was to analyze networks and to eventually penetrate networks. And this was such an amazing start to my career. I wish I would have had a little later in life just because... It's hard to appreciate just doing offensive attacks all day, every day when this is your first job in your career, but did that for about three and a half years, loved life every step of the way. And this is where I pivoted a bit into threat intelligence. I went to McAfee and I was working still with government clients, but we were building threat intelligence tools for our government clients to be able to query information, correlate information and find related indicators based off of the massive data set that we had. We had a lot of binaries. And this is where I got bit by the bug, where I found out I loved building tools that dealt with data, and specifically data about threats, data about information that you have that can relate to threats later, like information that you would typically find in a SIM or some type of data warehouse. And, after McAfee building several threat intelligence tools, this is kind of where our, our stories parallel a bit. I went to IronNet Cybersecurity, and that's where I met you. And one thing that I've loved about our relationship and also kind of learning about your background with threat intelligence is you were completely strategic, you were tactical, and you really focused on operations, operationalizing threat intelligence my experience was the technical pieces of threat intelligence. So when we worked together, I was working hard on just parsing feeds. I was like, hey, let's let's try to boil the ocean and let's try to ingest all the feeds and do a bunch of stuff with it. But you were very narrow-minded on what is going to help the business. How can I take some of this data and make sense out of it all? So I think that's really where I kind of learned beyond the technical aspects of threat intelligence was through you. So shout outs to you. And after IronNet, I spent some time working again in the corporate world. I went to Intel Corporation for about a year and a half and built some threat intel tools there. And I realized that I didn't want to just build tools and automation for just a single organization. So I pivoted once again, and I went to a company called Demisto. Demisto. And for anyone that's used any type of security orchestration, automated response tool, also known as SOAR, it's all about integrations and APIs. So I spent the past three years of my life writing integrations, helping Fortune 500 and even smaller businesses automate their security process and security response processes. So that's really been my background and also my experience with threat intelligence and marrying threat intelligence with other data sources.
0: Yeah, that's perfect. And I think you're the only person in the world that can make narrow-minded sound like a compliment. (laughs) 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 But no, I think we got to start kind of at the base, right? What can threat intelligence do for an organization? From my perspective, threat intelligence is the context for the threat environment for either the vertical or the industry that you're in, and also for the business. So what are the pieces of information about the threats, malware, nation state activity, all the things across the board? What are the threats to the company from a cyber perspective? And then how do you give that information to the right people to then make decisions or do actions within the business to make the company more safe?
1: And I think that's basically what threat intelligence is. Would you agree? I would agree with that. And I think in the world that we live in today, it's all about making informed decisions. So I think when it comes to threat intelligence, any artifact, any bit of information that helps you make an informed decision about a threat, whether it's cyber, people related, physical, that is threat intelligence. But the one
0: thing that I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen this going from organization to organization, is whenever I'm the first Intel hire, or if I'm the only Intel consultant for a company and they're pretty new to the intelligence space and they haven't had much of a, a program before, is I always get those stares. And then someone says, Hey, so tell me about how you do threat intelligence. And they're not a threat intelligence analyst. They're something else. Maybe they're a vulnerability management person, or maybe they're doing application security. But I know when they ask that question, they have a different view or they have a different take on what they've seen in threat intelligence before. So they might have been like scarred in the past from threat intelligence. And, and here's right. why I think people get scarred by threat intelligence. They get scarred by threat intelligence because of the buzz that happened in a long, long time ago, the buzz sprouted a bunch of analysts that might not known just how much work actually goes into threat intelligence, but then also businesses were spurned out of that. And so all of this kind of brought together, you're going to have a such a huge variation in the quality of threat intelligence. And so they might have worked with somebody who might have taken a boot camp or something like that. And they've had a little bit of help desk experience because everybody wanted threat intelligence at one time. And so people were getting jobs that maybe didn't understand the tradecraft or what the impact should be for an organization. And so they have this idea that all threat intelligence is snake oil. It's not worth its weight. And I think that's really where the problems kind of started. I think it's getting a lot better. You have things like MITRE attack framework, like really pushing the boundaries of organizing threat intelligence and making it a touchstone for operations for hunters and threat intel folks and other security operators. But I think there's still a little bit more that we need to do in the maturation stage for threat intelligence. And that's a big part of why we're doing this season first.
1: Yeah. And just to add on to that, with the misconceptions that Came up through the past, and maybe too many tools emerging at once. Analysts, engineers, and even stakeholders being overwhelmed with data. With all of that happening at once, it did kill the confidence of maybe some of the value of threat intelligence. Threats are multifaceted. The information that we get from partners, vendors, and the community about threats is going to be valuable, but also what you do with your infrastructure over time is really going to help you understand what kind of information you need to learn about threats. If you are a organization that has a lot of devices or applications that you maintain, a bit of information about threats that you're going to need is going to be a lot different. You're going to need more information about how to protect assets and applications and devices, but for organizations that are fully SaaS based where they're using applications hosted in the cloud, your type of threat intelligence is going to be different in that type of scenario too. And I agree, we are going to bring in some amazing guests that are going to have different viewpoints on all of these facets of threats and threat intelligence. Yeah, you know how they said there's always an app for that? Well, there's always threat intelligence for
0: whatever you're trying to do. Even as everything is growing and maturing, and security operations today looks much different than it did five years ago, there's still threat intelligence that you can inject into all of those processes even with SOAR, right, like you were talking about, automating data enrichment is super important. Now you can actually have machines do that work for you. They can do that research. They can pull those data points together so then analyst doesn't have to go to different portals to pull that information. And so not only do you have a better understanding of the threat, you actually do it much, much faster and much more efficient. And when you think about threat intelligence, think about the problems that you would run into for a given mission. So if you're, like I said, application security or infrastructure, or maybe even you're in compliance or you're a risk manager, really think about what information you would need to make better decisions for your day-to-day job. And actually I ended up creating a framework a couple years ago at this point that really encapsulated how you operationalize that threat intelligence across the board. And what was that called, Ryan?
1: <laughs> you should be the one describing it, but <laughs> I'll definitely describe yeah. <laughs> it. <laughs> but it is one of my faves. I, I refer to it a lot, especially when it comes to organizations that I work with. It is the easy framework. Yes, indeed. The easy framework. When you bring it up, what are the situations in which you're bringing it up to folks? we get caught up, especially me being technical and some of the organizations that I work with, we get so caught up on the technical aspects of what threat intelligence can be. But understanding why you're implementing a solution or any type of threat intelligence is a more important question. Besides what features does a product or a service have? That's a great question to ask. But only when you know what it is that you're trying to accomplish. When we walk through the easy framework, it's about defining what are the requirements first. Let's go ahead and walk through the the easy framework, and I'll marry it with some of the questions that I ask users and organizations. So, yeah, the E is illicit requirements. So a lot of the time you'll have
0: maybe junior analysts or maybe a first hire and they've done threat intelligence before at another organization. And when they go to a new organization, they kind of bring those requirements along with them because it's what they know, right? It's what they've done before. But what you really should be doing is you should really talk to the stakeholders around the company. Maybe they're a part of the security function. Maybe they aren't maybe it's someone in a business unit, but really talking to them about what information they need from a a threat intelligence standpoint. So what, what are the attacks, the emerging threats? What are the vulnerabilities that they need to be thinking about when they're doing their day-to-day mission? And so by talking to them, you actually build that rapport. So that situation where like, so How do you do Threat Intel? You basically negate that because you're actually going to talk to them about what their needs are. And you can actually convey a little bit of your expertise. And that really shows a degree of maturity when you are asking them about their needs and you tell them about how you could best support them. Eliciting those requirements is an absolute must do. Because if you just join an organization and you don't talk to any of the stakeholders, and you just start producing threat intelligence, who knows
1: if it's actually going to be useful for those folks. When I work with any organization or team, sometimes the team is new or the engineer is new. One thing that they typically forget to ask, and this is so unfortunate, is why is this tool here in the first place? What did my leaders, what did the stakeholders, the people that have buying authority, what were their intentions behind buying this tool or buying this service? And if you ask anyone that on the team, whether it's a team member or the stakeholder, you have insight as to what the expectations are with whatever it is that you're trying to do with threat intelligence or tool. So defining that use case and understanding what are the expected outcomes for that use case allow you to have a lot more success going forward. Exactly. You'll have more success because you guys agreed
0: or you folks agreed on what needs to come out of this threat intelligence, right? The flavor of the information. How quickly do you need this information and setting those, those thresholds for report this stuff, but don't give me this stuff because One of the quickest ways to have your threat intelligence left unread is by giving them too much of the stuff that they don't need. And that's one thing that I've learned the hard way. I'm sure many other threat intelligence analysts have learned that the hard way. That's really important. is figuring out what information, how often, and exactly
1: what they need to do to get their mission accomplished. Exactly. Let's move to the A, which is assessing collection plan.
0: Yeah, assess collection plan. So when you are given those requirements or you went and got those requirements from your stakeholders, you then have to figure out what information you need to answer those questions. And a lot of people think external collection for the most part. But I'm going to also say that and I learned this a bit from you back in the day and something that I carry with me today is that there's also internal collection. Like what is the information inside the company? What are the logs that you're generating internal to the company that you can use for threat intelligence purposes? And so when you have this good collection of internal and external, that's when you have the power in your hands. And so figuring out External collection could be a couple of things. It could be premium feeds, like threat feeds that you might buy from a company. It could be researchers that you talk to. It could be your network. It could be Twitter for all I care. Twitter used to be one of my favorite threat feeds in the world because I could follow the the folks that were doing the forefront of that research. And as they discovered things, I would be right there with them. And Really understanding where you need to get your information from. If you're a new analyst at a new company, think about what your vertical is and find out if there's any information sharing communities that you can join that has similar information that you would want for your company. And then you can ask them about hey, where are you getting your information from? What are the sources that you use in your environment? So, Even though it might not always be a one to one match, it still gives you a general direction for how to build your collection and really write down what that collection plan looks like, because if you don't, there's going to be almost like this collection fade. You go into somewhere A sliding scale almost for your collection. You don't want to go outside the scope of what your collection needs. So being able to measure that collection is also important. How many tippers did you get from a certain feed or a certain source that actually escalated an incident or maybe it started a change within your environment? So keeping track of those metrics is super important. And as those requirements change, because you're going to go back, this isn't a one-time deal where you collect your requirements and you keep going you're going to go back and they're going to have new requirements. They're going to have different requirements. And so when you're doing your collection plan, that's going to change as well, because there might be a specific type of information that they need that you're not currently collecting. And so you're going to have to reassess that collection plan over time. Exactly.
1: And for me, being so SOAR oriented, automation oriented, this is where we work through something on a playbook, a Visio diagram, or a Lucid chart. We pull this information up and we we talk about some of the aspects that are gonna be automated. So what are some things in our collection plan that we can automate pulling? Maybe it's information from threat feeds. That's always something that's quite nice and easy to pull in an automated fashion, but then that's only gonna give you a partial view of, what the requirements are. You'll have some information about external sources. You might have to manually go out and grab information from a SIM or another tool or even a person. And that's also part of the collection plan. And I think once you map it out on a flowchart of some sort, you can kind of conceptualize what is going to work for V1. And as we were just mentioning, Chris, you're going to have to iterate this collection plan over and over again. You have to make it stronger and stronger because naturally there's going to be gaps. There's not tools and services for everything. And that's exactly what you're hired for. You're hired to fill in those gaps to find where things can be outsourced, automated or manually done through your expertise. So I like to work through this part by some type of diagram or a Visio chart, whatever we can do to visually conceptualize the collection plan and find the gaps early because you're going to have to ultimately report those back to your stakeholders. And that's perfect
0: segue into what exactly you are hired to do. And that's strive for impact, which is the S of the Easy framework. And so striving for impact is probably the most important but often overlooked part of threat intelligence. So I've been in so many organizations and I feel like this is such a waste of resources where you'll do a weekly intel report and you'll spend several several personnel hours building this in this weekly intel report. So you're pulling from different articles and things like that and it takes days to do and because it has to go up, it has to get approved and things like that and you send it out and no one reads it. So you spent all that time sending something out that no one's going to read and definitely nobody's going to action. So I really want folks to really think about how can I get information to folks where they can make a decision or take an action to make the company better? And so really think about that before you send that email, before you you post that somewhere, like what are the things that someone can do with that information? Can they... Add IPs to a block list, for instance, or can you arm your threat hunters with additional information so they can actually look for certain behaviors? Maybe detection logic. There's something emerging that is completely new and conventional security solutions aren't ready to catch it just yet. So you need somebody that to build custom detections for that stuff. What are the things you can do to make the company better? And then how do you measure that? And so I'll get to the, the why, which is yield the feedback in a little bit, but I'm, I want you to sit with that for a moment is what can I do or what can threat intelligence do to make the company better? And this is the stage where you see the, the delta between the folks that are like, oh, so what do you think about threat intel? And the folks that are like, I love threat intelligence. The folks that say, I love threat intelligence, threat intelligence has saved them time. It has saved them money and maybe even saved their job at one point. And so really, really think about how you can actually make a difference
1: in your organization through threat intelligence. Saving your job. I couldn't agree more. And you highlighted something that is often overlooked, and that's the metrics of threat intelligence. I think we get caught up in the efficacy of threat intelligence and how well it works, but there's so many aspects of other things that you can measure besides just how well something is working. Cybersecurity as a whole is a newer field and industry that we're still getting to know. We're still understanding our threats because they're evolving over time. The S is so important for Strive for Impact. I, I believe that when you have a draft of a report or you have a dev environment, whether if it's a more application-specific use case, A draft or a dev environment will allow someone else to critique the work before putting it out. And if you have the opinion and feedback from team members, and I know we're getting into the why a little bit, but I think before you even strive too far for impact and produce a final piece of content or final product, you want to understand that you're actually going to make an impact before showing someone that body of work. So I think that if you work on gathering the metrics that are going to be helpful when you were visiting the E for illicit requirements, if you have those metrics while you're striving for your impact, it's going to be a lot easier. If you have metrics when you're deploying a new tool and you're making sure that you're collecting the right information and it's stored somewhere, You're going to make a huge impact the first time around and make an even bigger impact as you iterate over the project continuously. You sure you didn't
0: write the easy framework wrong? Is
1: it- <laughs> I told you I use it. <laughs> it, is- <laughs> it- you might have created it, but now it's mine because I use it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it is yours, man.
0: You- you're giving me these perfect segues into the next part of the framework, which is yield to feedback. And that's super important. Just like you were talking about with the, the products. Understanding like if this is the-, the product that you need, is this the style of product that you need? That's so, so important. Because if you're just giving out products and no one's giving you feedback, how do you know if it's good or not? How do you know if it's something that folks are able to use and make those decisions and take those actions? And so really getting feedback from all of your stakeholders, getting feedback from the business, even getting feedback through your own metrics, whether it's a a feedback form. So something I've done is so simple, but it really has changed how I've done threat intelligence and it really changed how people even look at threat intelligence as a feedback form. I've used a a simple Google form that has two metrics, which is relevancy. So is this information going to the right person? Is this something that's going to be useful and impact? Like how useful is it? Is this just a nice to have right now or is this actually going to make a marked difference on how you operate or changes within our environment? And so I would do a simple form, have the top of the the RFI or the whatever the the product is that you're doing, the person that it's going to or the team, those two metrics, any additional comments. And I would pre-fill out the majority of it, leaving the the comments and the, the ratings off And then I would pre populate that link, send it to them in a Slack and 100% of the time has somebody responded to it because a lot of times you you have those feedback forms that are on the tail end. Maybe if they click into a, a website, I feel like because it's from a mechanical process, people feel less connected with it. But when you take that form and you actually give it to somebody and say, thank you for your request. I would love for you to take a few moments of your time to fill this out for me to better suit you in the future. And someone's going to take that 30 to 45 seconds to go ahead and go in there and fill out that. And then now you have metrics for how much good you're doing in your organization. And then on top of that, you can actually set goals for yourself for the future. So if right now you're you're doing like a 4.1 on both. And you're like, okay, next quarter, I want four threes across the board. And so now you're tweaking and tuning your threat intelligence program to be better every single quarter until you have this finely tuned machine that you're supporting the company with.
1: And I think we get caught up in defining a security team as a cost center. A security team is a business function. This is something that you need to keep the business functioning. You were not hired because it's nice to have or this is just something that organizations want. You're hired and you're consulted with to make sure that the business stays functional. So I, I look at it as a business function. And when you're getting this feedback, ask yourself, what can I do to make the business function better? With this feedback form, it's great that, You did this, Chris, because not only do you have some information about the relevancy of that artifact, that product that you provided someone, but you also have who gave it to you. You get to really understand which parts of the business are able to function better because they're integrating security and also giving feedback to the security of how they're securing their data. So when you understand the reach of your solutions with an organization that allows you to go even further. If you're getting a lot of feedback from just engineers, that's really great because you're providing an engineer's a function of the business, which is security. But you can also apply that to marketing. You can also apply that to sales. There's going to be all these functions of the business that are going to need their data secured. And there's ultimately going to be somewhat of compromise of data in any type of organization. And you want to reduce that. You want to find those opportunities. You want to get feedback from the users. And then you want to continually reduce the opportunity for any compromising of data, physical assets, or even users on your environment. You just set me up for one of my favorite soapboxes of all time. <laughs> and
0: this applies to threat intelligence, but it it really applies to all of cybersecurity. I was never into Formula One racing, like in my entire life. I was like, oh, you know, it's, you know, cars, they drive around real fast, you know, whoop de doo But there's a special on Netflix called Drive to Survive. I think they have two seasons at this point. And what it does is it really highlights the intricacies of Formula One racing. There's these multi-million dollar cars and these drivers. There's only like 22 spots or something like that in the entire world for these Formula One racers to race. And it it just shows how competitive everything is. The most interesting thing I find is actually from the pit. There's pit stops and things like that. But also in the pit, you have analysts that are sitting there watching screens and they're watching gauges and they're looking at the health of the car. So you can think of the health of the car as a cybersecurity apparatus or even the entire company. And those gauges are saying how hard you can push the car because those tires, they get worn really fast. And the engine has problems all the time because it runs hot. And there's all kinds of different issues that you can run into. And the folks in the pit, are telling the driver just how hard they can push that car in order to make that jump into the next place. Maybe you're moving from third to second, or maybe you're moving from second to first. How fast can I go safely to get to my destination? And so I thought that was a perfect analogy for cybersecurity within a business. We tell the company how fast, how hard, and how innovative the company can be safely to get to where they're going.
1: Well said. That is a great analogy. I need to watch that one. That sounds like a, a really nice uh, Netflix documentary, Doc History, big, as they call it. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's amazing. So I don't want to go too far without also getting everyone who's listening a little excited about what is to come. What are some highlights that you're expecting and hopeful for Hacker Valley Blue? The one thing I
0: want everyone to know about this season is that you're still going to get that Hacker Valley flavor that you're used to. We definitely still focus on the human element of all things, but this is a little bit more geared towards the practitioners. that are doing different things or maybe even understanding a different practice, but we're still bringing on folks that will highlight interesting intricacies of threat intelligence of cybersecurity. So for instance, I am so excited that we're going to bring Jack Resider back into onto the podcast and we're going to talk about bias, bias of all things because his storytelling, there's got to be a lot of bias that he's handling there and right. and how he manages that bias is going to be important because in threat intelligence, bias is so important. Like we talked about someone coming from one organization to another and they're bringing those requirements with them. There's a bias there or even like a cultural bias, like because you have a certain culture doesn't mean that the folks that you're doing research on have the same culture. There's so many different types of bias
1: in threat intelligence. And I would love to hear how he manages that. And looking a little more at your analogy for formula one, Hacker Valley blue is going to allow you to get a glimpse into the pit. We're going to be talking to all types of analysts, leaders, And individual contributors that work in these cybersecurity, these threat intelligence pits and look at how they've come to that point and also understand some of the challenges, stories and solutions that they've faced over the course of their career and what they're doing today. Well said. Another thing,
0: and I think you're going to be excited about this too, is talking to Darcy Webb. So Darcy Webb has been our vocal coach for the last three months or so. And she is just unbelievably amazing at what she actually does. And what does that have to do with threat intelligence? Threat intelligence is a communications-based function, You have to be able to speak. You have to be able to write. You have to be able to communicate your threat intelligence clearly to folks. And what Darcy does really well is that she really gets clarity in your voice and how you portray yourself. Because let's say you have intelligence that you're given, but you're not confident in it. You're not confident in yourself. You're soft-spoken. You don't open your mouth. Then that completely dampens the impact that your
1: intelligence could have. But if you speak clearly and eloquently, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. And like you were saying, we've been working with Darcy for quite some time. And it's so important not only for us to be working with threat intel experts and be acting as threat intel experts, we have to focus on not only the verbal communication, which is such an important aspect. And you also mentioned the written components but there's also another form of communication, which are your nonverbals, your face. So you were just mentioning moving your face around. I think that there's almost a whole nother degree of language when you look at your face. One of the challenges that I faced, that Darcy pointed out to me, was Ron, you have all this real estate between your forehead and your eyebrows. You need to use it. There's people that are looking at you. They're Waiting for you to give them a message, and your message is going to be critically important. It's about threats, it's about data, and it's about protecting assets or helping organizations. You have to use the real estate on your face to further communicate. They're going to be looking at you, but they might not be listening to you. There might be something else going on in their mind. If you're also able to communicate through your face, along with having a clear message that you're speaking, you're going to have infinitely more success. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'm super
0: excited to be doing these next eight episodes for this yes. season with you. And everybody, I can't wait to share these conversations with you and the world. And we'll see everybody next time. Can't wait for the journey. Let's see it.